Well, good morning. Good to see you. I'm still trying to recover from yesterday. I, uh, I've heard uh, that presentation um, by John on abortion and euthanasia a couple of times, but uh, every time I hear him teach those subjects, the, the wisdom and the sensitivity with which he does it, I just find incredibly um, heartwarming and incredibly challenging. And then, of course, that presentation from the mercurial David yesterday was uh, equally challenging, reminding us of a very different day in our nation when thousands would flock to hear the gospel and maybe scores or hundreds would respond. And we sit here just praying and wishing and hoping that that would happen again. But I love going around British churches telling you that's still happening. That's still happening. You need to have a global vision as you minister in the United Kingdom. And you need to see what God is doing in the world. I just wish I had an hour and a half to tell you of what God is doing in his world. It's been my privilege, just because of the job that I do with OM, to minister in more than 120 countries around the world, just to see what God is doing in and through his church is remarkable. Go back 200 years, the Christian church geographically was very restricted, Western Europe, Eastern Seaboard of North America, little outpost in South Africa. And then the Moravians began to pray. You'll hear more about it tomorrow, isn't it? The Moravians began to pray. And then they began to move. And uh, guys like Carey, many years later, took up the torch here in the UK. And something began then, the modern missions movement, that nothing and no one has been able to stop. And today is a day of harvest. Hallelujah. Today is a day of harvest for the glory of Christ around the world. Uh, I was telling you a little bit about South Korea yesterday. China is another country. It's just such a joy to minister in. I was there two or three years ago, I guess, and I met a guy who was related to the last emperor of China. And he went uh, to Australia, and he found Christ, and he came back to China. And he's been leading thousands of people to Jesus in the last 15 years. He's a very humble guy. I couldn't dig out of him how many people he led to Christ. But it's in the thousands. Personally, he planted over 20 churches in the city of Beijing. I'm sure you read the Financial Times regularly, especially the weekend supplement. Here's the weekend supplement uh, recently, a year or two ago, I guess, of the of the FT Weekend magazine. It's a depiction of Jesus on the front page, China's other leader. Let me just read you one paragraph from that article. Christianity, particularly the Protestant variety, has been the big winner in the competition for Chinese souls. If it continues to spread at its current pace, the country is very likely to be home to the world's largest Christian population within the next 15 years. Now listen to this. For China's authoritarian leaders who despise and fear any force not under their direct control, 
this seemingly unstoppable trend is very disturbing. Financial times. The wind blows where it wills. Don't, however, imagine that such things happen without a cost. There's a list of the martyrs, the missionary martyrs, in just one uh, outburst of martyrdom following the Boxer Rebellion in uh, 1900. 189 martyred missionaries. Look at their ages. You'll see many of them were two, three, five. The practice was to martyr the children in front of their parents before martyring the missionaries themselves. Great price paid, but uh, the blood of the martyrs is certainly the seed of the church. So have a global vision. Understand you're in, you're in the midst of something huge that God is doing around the world. As people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation come to bow at the feet of our Savior. That has nothing to do with Matthew chapter 4. <laughs> but it is exciting. So let's read that passage again, shall we? Matthew chapter 4, commencing to read at verse 1. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, And angels came and attended him. Father, thank you for the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word and your spirit. Please, please, Lord, by your spirit, take up your word this morning. Speak to me and speak to us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Lord Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, into the desert, into the wilderness. God 
was putting his son to the test. But you see that Satan seizes that moment. God is putting his son to the test, but Satan sees it as a wonderful opportunity. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I think if you are observant, this is something you will often recognize in your own life. God may test you. He puts a particular challenge before you, a particular difficulty in your life. And his purpose in doing that is to draw you closer to him through the difficulty, encouraging you to rely more and more on him. But Satan comes and he seizes that moment. Can there be a loving father in heaven if he allows that to happen to you? And of course, immediately, the old nature kicks in. Responding with self-pity, responding with the feeling of being hard done to. It's an extremely powerful combination. The accusation, the suggestions of the evil one, finding immediate agreement from the sinful nature within us. So from God's point of view, these 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness were intended to strengthen and to qualify Jesus for the ministry ahead. But from the devil's point of view, he seizes the opportunity to seek to weaken and disqualify Jesus from ministry, a ministry which, of course, he knew would eventually destroy him. So please note, that every experience of the Holy Spirit that you enjoy, every step forward of obedience that you make, every test which the Lord puts before us, carries with it the potential of shipwreck. Because Satan will be there seeking to destroy, and he will find ready and immediate agreement from the old nature within us. But equally note that every attack of Satan can be seen as a springboard for spiritual growth. As you respond to God and you say no to Satan. In that sense then, sometimes Satan can do us good. We know, of course, from the opening chapters of the book of Job, that Satan can be used as the instrument of God in the testing of the righteous. Now, I find this extremely helpful when I'm being drawn towards temptation. I know that as I'm drawn towards that sin, that temptation, that voice is not the voice of God. According to James 1.13, God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But it is possible that behind that satanic temptation, there is a divine test. And if I say no to the enemy at that point, that is part 
of God drawing me closer to himself, part of his fast track to my maturity. So if you're facing temptation, stop and remind yourself. This isn't God tempting me to sin. This is clearly the devil at work. But behind this, is there a divine test? And if I resist the devil at this point, it's all part of God's program to bring me to maturity. I wonder if that's why the Apostle James could write there in James chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind. If ever there was an insensitive pastor, (laughs) then it must be the Apostle James. He is the leader of the church in his day. His flock has been scattered through persecution. He has the opportunity to write a pastoral letter to them. There's not even one word of sympathy. Just write for the jugular. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of every kind. How can he say that to such recently scattered believers facing persecution? Well, here's the reason. Because, he says, you know that the testing of your faith, if you respond aright to it, produces perseverance and ultimately maturity. In other words, if you know what God is doing in all of this, if you know the reason for the outcome of the test, even the temptation that comes from the devil, then you can rejoice if you know there's a positive outcome. It's the semi-finals of the World Cup. Unsurprisingly, England are playing Germany. First half, Germany score. The players jump on the scorer, they're kissing him, they're hugging him. I'm watching telly depressed. Second half, as you, every Englishman would expect, England scored twice. 2-1 victory. Next day, I think, wow, I really enjoyed that. I'll get it again on catch-up. This time, when the German scores, I'm not depressed. I'm actually having a quiet laugh. Because I know the outcome. If you know what God is doing, if you know there's a purpose in this, then you have a completely different perspective of the trial. So, let's move to the first specific temptation. We'll look at temptation one this morning and two and three tomorrow morning. Forty days and nights without food. Matthew records he was hungry. An understatement, I think. And the tempter came to this starving man and said, if You are the son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. Now notice, the tempter came to him. The temptation came to him from the outside. There's no fallen nature in the son of God. There's no temptation from within. It's possible that a better translation here is, since you are 
the Son of God. Since that is exactly what the Father told you at your baptism, and since that is now what you believe about yourself, how utterly ridiculous to remain hungry. Look at these limestone rocks on the desert floor, looking exactly like little loaves of bread. Just, just turn them into bread. If you are, since you are, the Son of God. Let's look at three things in relation to this temptation. Number one, what is the, the, the real force of the temptation? Number two, how did Jesus resist this temptation? And number three, we'll look at some practical applications for us in ministry today. So firstly, what was the real force of this temptation? The principal term in the, the whole of the temptation narrative is this term, Son of God. That is what was put to the test in the wilderness. Precisely this, the sonship of Jesus. And again, it's absolutely vital to notice the connection with Israel here. When God sent Moses to Pharaoh to demand the release of his people, this was the message he gave to him. Exodus 4.22 Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, he must be let go to worship me. The prophets also speak of Israel as the firstborn son of God. Jeremiah 31 verse 9, I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. So in the wilderness, Israel, God's firstborn, firstborn son, had mistrusted his fatherly care, rejected that, that care, complained about that care. Think of Israel's reaction to the provision of manna. And now here is the Son of God. How will he respond in the wilderness? You can also go back to Adam and Eve. Ample provision from God in the garden. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every tree bar one. Will they be satisfied? Satisfied with God's provision for them? Well, Satan is absolutely determined that they won't. And they fall to his suggestions, uh, mistrusting God's motives and questioning the adequacy of his provision. To understand the force of this first temptation, we must see that it's fundamental to biblical understanding, biblical conviction, that God is the creator and the sustainer of all and gives life and food to his creation. Psalm 136, 25. He gives food to every creature. Psalm 146, 7. He upholds the cause of the oppressed 
and gives food to the hungry. Psalm 106.27 All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. And that was God's promise to Israel as they prepared to enter the land. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands which I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herd, the lambs of your flock, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. That was God's promise as they were about to enter the land. And Israel had a huge track record with their God. They'd enjoyed his blessing throughout their wilderness journey. Deuteronomy 2, 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He's watched over your journey throughout this vast wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You've lacked nothing. And of course, when they didn't have earthly bread, God gave them food from heaven. But Israel was discontented with God's provision. They referred to the manna from heaven as this worthless manna. Exodus 16.2 In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. We ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Later, of course, they complained again, remembering the fish they ate in Egypt at no cost. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlics. But we've lost our appetite. We never see anything. But this manna, one of Israel's stopping places in the desert, owes its name to their craving, their craving for quails, kibroth hatavah, graves of craving. It's important to recognize that this discontent with the food, the nourishment God provided them is characterized as unbelief. Lack of trust, a violation of their basic obligations in the covenant. Listen to Numbers 11 verse 18. Moses is told, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now... The Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just a day or two days or five, ten or twenty, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and you've wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt. You see, rejection of God's provision was rejection 
of him. The Jewish commentators on the Old Testament believed that the issue with the Israelites was what was that they had a divided heart. These cravings, based on their memories of life in Egypt, meant in one sense they'd never really left Egypt. To some degree, their hearts were still in Egypt. The rabbis would speak of the righteous man as someone who had a clean, whole, undivided heart. Someone who just wanted with his whole heart to obey God. In their writings, they refer to the two inclinations in the heart of man. The evil and the good inclination. The good inclination is that within us which just desires the will of God and to do the will of God satisfies us. The evil inclination, they taught, was not evil in itself. They saw hunger, thirst, uh, the reproductive instinct as legitimate expressions of this evil inclination. But they said it is inclined towards evil and leads us into sin when it succeeds in bringing us to that which is contrary to the will of God. You remember God's promise through Jeremiah when he brought his people back from exile. I will give you singleness of heart and action so that you will always fear me. So, satisfying our craving for food is not evil in itself. But doing that in a way which is against the law or the will of God certainly is. And, and all of this is vital background to this first temptation. There in the garden, Adam and Eve express their dissatisfaction with God's provision and they broke the covenant. In the wilderness, Israel, God's firstborn son, expressed their dissatisfaction with his provision. They broke the covenant. They showed their divided heart. Now here is the son of God in the wilderness. And Satan brings his temptation. He's been led there by the Spirit. He knows he's in the will of God. He knows by covenant that God is committed to provide for him. Will he wait? Will he wait for that provision? Or will he bow to the tempter's suggestion? Since you are the Son of God. Just had it confirmed at your baptism. Since you are the Son of God, command the stones to become bread. There would, in one sense, have been nothing wrong with that. Some believe that the temptation here is to use his divine powers to satisfy his personal needs. But there would have been no sin there. Satisfying your craving for hunger is not sinful. The issue is, would he trust, would he wait for his father at this crucial moment? 
as the son, was he assured of his father's love and care and therefore his ultimate provision for him? That's the huge force of this temptation in the wilderness. It's a massive temptation. Let's look secondly at how Jesus resisted this temptation. He answered the tempter, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now that could mean two things, and it probably means both. The words that came from the mouth of God could just be the commands that come from God's mouth. Jesus may be saying to Satan, I choose to believe my father's word rather than follow your evil suggestions. It may be as simple as that. But you might remember that yesterday I suggested that during these 40 days of temptation, Jesus may have enjoyed a time of consecrated fellowship, a sort of retreat with God, some kind of special spiritual nourishment corresponding to the manna in the wilderness. And it's clear from his responses that the word of God was very much on his mind at this time, and particularly the word of God from those three chapters in Deuteronomy. Michael Green in his commentary on this passage says, this suggests that Jesus had been studying Deuteronomy in his own devotional readings. From within these two chapters, he draws on material that he has memorized. Imagine the Son of God doing this, having his morning devotional from Deuteronomy, memorizing these scriptures and now the spirit who came upon him so powerfully at his baptism is able to take those scriptures he has learned and he can use them in spiritual warfare when I was about 18 I worked for two years at an office about a mile and a half from my home I guess and to get there you had to walk across a a very large park And I chose to walk uh, to work every day and and home again in the evening, rain, hail or shine, uh, and to learn by rote, by memory, four scriptures every day. So for two years, I just packed scripture into my head. They're still there, authorized version, still there, (laughs) packed into my head. I can't tell you how valuable that has been in my life. I can't tell you how often I've been being drawn towards evil, recognizing that's Satan, but God may have encouragement for me here. He may be testing me, and there's wonderful victory and growth if I resist. And as I'm being drawn, the Holy Spirit brings one of those scriptures that I learned more than 40 years ago now into my mind. (coughs) Memorization of scripture is so crucial. To quote Michael Green again, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And if we don't know our way round the scriptures and don't trust the spirit in the warfare against Satan, we will not share in the victory of God's son. 
But if we do, the Spirit will bring scriptures to our attention when temptation presses. And like Jesus, we will find the power to overcome. So there's the power of temptation, the power of this particular temptation. And there's the strategy that Jesus used, encouraged by the Spirit, to resist the temptation. So finally, let's apply this first temptation to our ministry and our lives today. And to do so, let me start with Abraham. And I want you to think of two incidents in his life. Abraham had been promised a son. Ten years passed, there's no son. So what does he do? He turns stones into bread. He takes the situation into his own hands and he fathers his son Ishmael by the maid Hagar. Now fast forward 15 years and God has given him Isaac and he tests him again. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him there in Moriah on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This time, Abram went right through to the 40th day of the test. He was ready to live by every word that came from the mouth of God. And he did so until the very last minute, when, of course, God intervened and said, Now I know that you fear God. I believe in every man and woman who's going to be significantly used by God, there comes a time when we're taken right out of our comfort zones and we're left with nothing and no one upon whom we can rely and depend but God himself. For many of us, such moments come many times in our ministry. I wonder if you're ready to trust God in that moment. I think uh, of David. There he is. He's got his staff and he's got his five smooth stones. And he's standing before a fully armed, incredibly experienced warrior who's a giant of a man. What's he going to do? in his moment of test. That moment when there's nothing to do but run or trust God entirely. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the army of the hosts of heaven and the God of the armies of this Israel whom you have defiled. Maybe there's someone this morning and you're at that point in your life and ministry. You've got a challenge and it's so huge. And you feel you've got nowhere to turn but to God. Are you going to trust him? You know, when I led the work of OM for uh, many years, Every year we had to see about 90 to 100 million dollars 
come into the bank accounts of OM just to, just to keep going, just to make sure our missionaries could eat and could do their work. <laughs> and I can think of time and time again when the temptation was to turn stones into bread. We were offered money, big money, with just a few conditions. Just a few conditions. Well, I, can, I can just remember, even now as I stand here, the tension of those moments. Were we going to say yes to that, stones into bread? Or were we going to trust in every word that had come from the mouth of God? Who promised to provide, we had a track record of his provision. Were we going to trust him? Or turn stones into bread? Second lesson. We've seen the importance of scripture. The word of the spirit in our ongoing warfare against Satan and temptation. And yet, I have to inform you, brothers and sisters, that many Christian workers spend very little time in that book you are holding in your hand. Some years ago, a survey was carried out by a missionary leader called Phil Parshall. He did a survey of missionaries around the world just trying to find out their prayer and Bible reading habits. And he was totally shocked by the results. On average, he computed Christian missionaries spend 11 minutes a day in Bible reading and nine minutes a day in prayer. He then, of course, went on to say that he knew large, large numbers of fellow missionaries who spent much more time than 11 minutes in Bible study and nine minutes in prayer. So his conclusion was that there are many missionaries out there on the field seeking to do, thinking they're doing the work of God, and yet they're spending very little time with him. Very little time in his word, very little time in prayer. There are great reasons, of course, great reasons for building these basic disciplines into our lives. And here's one of them. It's such a powerful weapon to defend yourself against temptation. If you've been in the word of God that morning and Satan comes, how often does the Holy Spirit take some word that you've been in in recent days and bring that word to bear on the situation? Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Thirdly, as we've seen, this was a concerted attack against the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. I've come to believe that this whole issue of Christian identity is crucial in Christian ministry and particularly crucial if you're involved in Christian leadership. I'm so convinced of it that I wrote a book which I see um, ten of those have got and it's called uh, Building on the Rock. Building on the Rock. And the last chapter is all about identity and Christian leadership. Every year at the Keswick Convention, we have a reception for missionaries. We, we enable some missionaries to come uh, at reasonable cost to the convention. We, we have a tea with them. And I have the privilege of speaking to them 
and then we have discussion around tables. And I won't forget for some time, I think, a, a missionary lady. She's a lovely lady. She'd been in Brazil for 40 years of ministry. She'd ministered amongst children for 40 years, and she clearly loved these children to death. And the policy of the mission was, at 70, you've got to come home. doesn't matter what you're doing. doesn't matter how healthy you are. That's the policy. You come home at 70. And she sat beside me. She said, Peter, I don't know how I'm going to live if I come home. I don't know how I'm going to live without these children. I don't know who I am without these children. And that phrase, I don't know who I am without these children, such a sad, sad phrase, isn't it? I was uh, talking to a uh, missionary leader about another leader who was part of his leadership team who'd retired. Uh, And I said to him, how's he doing? He said, he's not doing well. He, He really doesn't know who he is any longer. Without the title, without the job, he doesn't know who he is. Where is the basis, the foundation of your identity this morning? Is it your job, your title, your position, your authority? If all that's stripped away, what's left? When I was uh, 64, I guess, I was the international director of OM. I was the chairman of the Keswick Convention. I, I served on the global board of, I think, three or four global charities. And I determined that by the time I was 65, I I didn't want any of these jobs. I've always been scared of holding on to jobs for too long and and not giving space for younger leaders to, to emerge. So I asked the Lord to get me out of all this by the time I was 65. And I failed. I'm sure he didn't fail. I failed. I was 65 and three months when I finally got the last responsibility down. So if I was 64 and you'd come and said to me, Peter, who are you? Sadly, I probably would have said, well, I'm the international director of OM, and so on and so on. If you come and ask me that today, who, who am I? I've got none of these titles, none of this authority or responsibility. Who am I? Where is your identity? You know, if your identity is established, I'm a son of God. And I don't need an annual appraisal when it comes to that relationship. I am God's son. And nothing can ever take that from me. If you are strong, confident in that position, then... You can finally serve. You've nothing left to prove, you see. You can't improve on that title, can you? I am a son of God. Any better title than that? You can't improve on it. When you finally rest in your adoption into the family, then you're released to lay down your life in service. I love John 13, don't you? Jesus knows he's going to die. Imagine you were in that position. You knew you were going to die in a few days. You had the opportunity to gather your friends and family around, have a last conversation with them. That's the opportunity Jesus had. You find the conversation in John 13 to 16. 
Where did Jesus start his final conversation? Well, he'd organized this meal, you see. And I think he'd texted ahead. And he said, make sure the servant who washes the feet isn't around. Give him a day off. I've got a teaching opportunity. And they're all there. They come in from the muddy roads, their feet filthy. They're on these low tables, so feet are very close to faces next door. And everybody knows what should happen. It's the protocol. You can't eat without feet being washed. Just not on. It's not right. And they're all waiting. Who's going to rise? Who's going to serve? Who's going to wash the feet? Who's going to take the lowly place? Who is sufficiently secure to serve? Must have been a deathly hush in the room. Because everybody knew what should be happening. And then the Son of God, the master of the universe, takes his towel and he begins to wash their feet. Can you imagine the embarrassment? He begins to wash their feet. And of course you can't imagine that scene, can you, without imagining him coming to Judas. The man he knows is going to betray him within hours. What do you do? What do you do to your Judases? What do you do to your Judases? What do you do to those who you know are not rooting for you? They're probably trying to drag you down. What does Jesus do? He washes his feet. How can you live like that? Well, you get the secret in, I think it's verse 3, is it, or verse 4. Jesus knowing where he'd come from and where he was going to, took the towel. That's the connection. He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going to. He was secure in his identity. Therefore, he could serve. Therefore, he could take the towel. Here's Jesus in the wilderness. Adam has failed. Israel has failed. The covenant has been violated. Will the Son of God Stand firm. Will he turn stones into bread or will he trust every word that comes from the mouth of God? This morning we rejoice that he stood firm and he trusted every word that had come from his father's mouth. That's why we are redeemed this morning because of his obedience and ultimately his obedience at the cross. And he's also a tremendous example for us in our lives and in our grappling with temptation. Let's pray. Lord, it's so simple in one sense, Lord, for me to... Uh, speak these words this morning but I know I've got to give, go out and I've got to live by what I've, I've taught in these last uh, few minutes uh, and Lord I, I just need your, your grace, your mercy I'm so, so prone to turn the stones into bread to take the easy way out not to hang on to your word in the difficult moments 
Forgive me, Lord, for when I failed in the past. Give grace for today and the days ahead. I pray that for all my brothers and sisters bowed before you now. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not sitting here gritting our fingers or gritting our teeth and, and thinking I've got to do this. We're, we're sitting here thinking, Lord, your spirit is within us. And if we can learn to rely upon your spirit, to allow your Holy Spirit to fill us, then we can live day by day in the sort of victory which we see the Lord Jesus having there in the wilderness. Grant that victory, we pray, for his glory and your name's sake. Amen.